We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 16, and we read the, the words earlier from verse 17 and, and onwards, and it's, it's a little bit odd why I might choose this, and before I get into verses 17 and onwards, I want you to just notice something of the context that Paul has greeted so many different individuals in Rome by name, and that's quite remarkable. Because Paul's going to get into warning them about false teachers, but there's something unique about a true teacher, a true servant of the Lord, such as the Apostle Paul. And I think one of the things that marks out a true teacher, though this isn't a guarantee of anything, but it's something that I, I, I notice that Paul is able to greet a church in Rome where he hasn't yet been, of people by individual names, which shows first how much God cares to devote basically a whole chapter of Romans to individual names, that they are important, that they deserve to be named. But secondly, that the Apostle Paul could know these individuals and pray for them. And what you will find with false teachers very rarely is their ability to know the names of the people they preach to, sometimes, not always, sometimes in part because the size of their congregation is so large they can't possibly know everybody's name, and so they aren't actually true pastors to the people they minister to. And that is a problem. So I've often said the only person who can legitimately pastor, not preach to, but pastor a megachurch is the Lord Jesus Christ because he knows us by name. He laid down his life for us. He has the ability to minister to each and every one of us. And so I do think that uh, there is something unique about the fact that Paul knows these people by name in Rome. And how is that possible? Paul is a unique individual, but I think more than anything, you can see he's a pastoral apostle who cares about people and hence their names. And you can just go through those names and, and basically you should be able to say that your pastor could actually write a letter to the church and mention you all by name and maybe even say something about you. It's interesting what Paul will do in chapter 16. He'll have little tidbits about people and what they did. And one of my favorites is when he says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. It's like, I don't know what he does, but he's chosen in the Lord, right? Um, it's great touch on Rufus. Don't call your child Rufus. Um, but Paul does in Romans, what he does in almost every single letter that he writes, and he warns about false teachers. There are so many warnings in the New Testament concerning false teachers. So many. And you wonder why. Are they a little bit over the top? Is there a reason? And we have to just accept that it's obviously going to be a problem. And you'll notice that Paul says in verse 17 that he appeals to them, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. Contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. So, who are these people? They are people who create divisions and obstacles in relation to 
doctrine. And what you will often find concerning those who are false teachers is another thing that goes hand in hand with false teaching, and that is false living. So, lo and behold, verse 18, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. So what you see here is Paul doesn't just say avoid false teachers. They don't serve Jesus. He will explain what is it that they do serve. Who is it that they serve? Why do they serve? They are sensual people. They're greedy people. Not just evil people, but they have certain appetites. And I'm going to look a little more into the motivations of true and false prophets and, and the distinction between true and false teachers because growing up in Ireland, Northern Ireland, England, wherever you may be from, you're going to be confronted at some point in your life with true and false teaching. And I want to give you some sort of boundaries to be able to maybe discern uh, between the two. Now, notice that as he continues, he has high hopes for these Roman Christians in verse 19. Your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. So because they are obedient, it seems to me that they have embraced the truth because that is the logical implication of obedience in the New Testament always flows out of the truth. So he rejoices, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So he doesn't take for granted that they are currently in a good place because he knows that false teaching can happen at any moment. And really what he wants them to be is too good, too holy, too righteous to deceive and too wise to be deceived. And you have to accept this, and it's sometimes hard for people to accept, but there is, shall I say, there is a duty upon you in light of your Christian living not to be deceived. The fault does not exclusively lie with the false teacher. The fault begins with the false teacher but false teachers need itching ears and they need hearts to penetrate with false doctrine that people will easily gobble up. And those types of people are ultimately responsible for what they accept or what they reject. So you, you cannot say, well, those poor people, they're being led astray. Yes, they are poor people and they are being led astray, but... Most of them are willingly being led astray because false doctrine is always sensual to some extent. So, as Paul speaks about this, he gives them some great truths in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And that is... Uh, one of the great verses of the New Testament because what you find is that from the very beginning in Genesis 3.15 where it speaks about crushing the head of the serpent and that the seed of the woman, that is Jesus Christ, and actually all of those who belong to Jesus Christ is included in the seed of the woman because it's, a, it's collective. The seed of the woman 
will crush Satan, but God crushes Satan. Well, who crushes Satan? Well, what we're being told here is that God crushes Satan, Christ through his death crushes Satan, but Satan is crushed also under our feet, not just God's feet. So we will crush Satan. And one way in which we crush Satan is by embracing the truth and rejecting his evil insinuations into our lives. So let's just look a little more at um, true and false uh, prophecy or true and false teachers. The first thing you need to understand is that the source of true prophecy is always the Word of God. And so when I came, was invited to this conference, they were very insistent that it would be from the Word of God. They say, we go to the Bible and we give you a book of the Bible and you're going to preach from the Bible. That's a very good start for any conference uh, because you know what people are like who come. They, they may just get out uh, talks and tell stories and things like that, but at least at this conference, there has been to me a very obvious willingness to make sure that it is Bible-focused. And Bible-focused teaching to your credit, isn't always the most popular type of teaching. Believe me, I know what I would need to say and do in order to expand the church very quickly in Vancouver. I know the types of people that get thousands to come and hear them and the type of uh, moral self-help and, and the types of stories and things like that. And so I commend you for coming to a conference where clearly the Bible is something that you want to open up and learn from. It's not as common as it used to be. But the source of false prophecy comes from Satan. Because remember, what does he say? You will not surely die. You have the word of God in the Garden of Eden. You have God's word and you have Satan's word. Satan's word leads to death. God's word leads to life. Adam chose Satan's word. But then you also have the motivations of true and false prophets. And you see something of that in the text here in Romans 16. But true prophets are compelled to teach and preach out of a necessity. They, they have to. Paul says, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. But there are others. And... Uh, this is uh, rather disturbing when you consider that these others uh, have their own reasons for why they preach. And that is because of personal gain. You see that in Romans 16 verse 18. There's a personal gain for them. And it's found elsewhere actually. It goes right back to the Old Testament in Micah chapter 3 verse 5. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray... If one feeds them, they proclaim peace. If he does not, they prepare to wage war against him. So these types of prophets will preach, Oh, peace, peace. God loves you. Everything is all good. Ah, thank you for that meal. But if the prophet doesn't preach peace, peace, when there is no peace, they prepare to wage war against him. And so the prophet has to make a decision. Am I going to be faithful to God? And all of the possible consequences of that? Or am I going to be faithful to 
my belly, my desires, in which case I'm going to have to tailor my message in order to make sure that my standard of living remains intact. And you can see very clearly how that might work out in a modern day context. Even in Ezekiel, we read, you have profaned me among my people for a few handfuls of barley and scraps of bread. By lying to my people, who listen to lies, you have killed those who should not have died and spared those who should not live. So do you see what God is saying there in Ezekiel? You have lied to my people who actually listen to lies. They weren't in a great place. And God's people can be very prone to hearing things that are not true because ultimately we are like sheep. And when you look at the nature of sheep, that's not the greatest commendation of who we are. The stories of sheep are, are legion on really not being the brightest animals. I mean, there's that one story in Turkey where there were these farmers and they had a whole host of sheep, I think hundreds of sheep, and one sheep decided to just run and jump off a cliff. Like, literally, just ran and jumped off a cliff. What do you think the other sheep did? Think they said, what's that idiot doing? No, they followed him. In fact, I think the pile got so high that the slower sheep ended up surviving because they landed upon the pile. And then I thought, well, Darwin, figure that one out. <laughs> but, but personal gain. One is necessity. The other's personal gain. False prophets also want personal acceptance. And again, you go back to verse 18 in Romans chapter 16. There's this idea of acceptance. But in Micah 2.11, personal acceptance, if a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for this people. Because in the Old Testament, that was a sign of God's blessing. So if he comes and says, wine and beer, wine and beer, that was basically him saying, God's blessing, God's blessing. And what we're being told here is he would be just the prophet for this people. Usually false prophets, they don't say anything that could possibly offend. It leaves people feeling good. They come in, their heads are low, but they leave and they feel good all the time. Of course you should leave feeling good when you go to church and worship God. But sometimes leaving feeling good is because you have been pierced and you repent and you turn to God and you feel good that your conscience has been cleansed by the word. But sometimes you have to feel bad before you can feel good. The false prophets skip that part and think that you can get to the good without the bad. And so what are the characters of the false prophet and his message? Well, the true prophet, usually his character is he sees himself as a sinner. You see how Isaiah reacts in chapter 6 or how Paul reacts earlier in chapter 7 or how Peter says, depart from me, I am a sinful man. But the false prophets... They're good people. False prophets are generally very nice guys. False teachers are, are, it's not like, you know, they grow a mustache like Hitler and put on a Nazi uniform and go around and say, well, I'm going to preach the gospel. And, and you go, oh, well, there, that person must be a false teacher. 
False teachers are, are really nice guys because that's, that's how they get by. If they're prophesying to you plenty of, of wine and beer and, and God's blessing and telling you that you know, you're going to be able to thrive and succeed in life and health, wealth, and prosperity, they're obviously going to come across as nice guys. It wouldn't be to their advantage to come across in any way where they may convict you of your sin or call you out for some specific sin. That doesn't make sense to their whole program. So Paul knows this. And the true prophet exposes sin. When Jesus is even talking to that woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, yes, and the man you are now living with is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. He convicted her of her sin. And you can see how God convicts Adam of his sin in Genesis 3. You have the rich young ruler. Yes, one thing you lack. It's always specific because if there's one thing I've learned about preaching, even in a nice conservative, uh, and for us Presbyterians who are sitting here, a nice conservative Presbyterian context, it's this. Nobody gets offended if you say we're sinners. We're sinners, right? Does, does any Presbyterians in a conservative Presbyterian church want to put up their hand right now and say, no, we aren't sinners. You shouldn't talk that way. No, we all know we're sinners. What actually is a problem is when our specific sins get pointed out. And I notice this because I can say, for example, about one of my children, let's say, um, he can have a bit of a temper. He's a fiery, passionate guy, but he has a temper, and we have to watch that temper. They're all different. They all got different sins. And it's okay if I say that. But if you were to come and stay at my house, I've offered you guys to come stay in Vancouver. You can come to Victoria, stay with my parents. They got a nice big house and visit, have a good time. Say, I sent you. It's all good. It always works out. But if you were to come and you were to say, wow, you know, your son really has a temper. It is way worse when someone else confirms and tells you that when you have just said it to yourself. It's okay. So you can say, yeah, you know, I do suffer with pride. You know, I do, I have a temper problem or I have this. But if someone else comes and tells you that specifically a sin about who you are, that really doesn't sit well, does it? We like specifics when those specifics help us, right? Um, you're to come back to uh, love and marriage, you know? Uh, wouldn't it be nice if, you know, when you meet your future spouse and they say, yeah, no, I like you. It's good. All good. You're like, okay, uh, anything else? <laughs> nope, looks pretty good to me. Um, or you meet someone else and they say, oh, well, you've got these eyes. Oh, they're so beautiful. The way they just, and these eyes, and I love how your hair flows. And you're just like, now that's what I'm looking for, <laughs> Right? Nobody wants just a general sort of, well, yeah, looks fine. You want specifics, don't you? I remember my grandmother when I lived with her in England and every certain day of the week, and this must be English, old English ladies, 
there would be like this massive Darth Vader helmet over her and she'd be sitting there and she'd get her hair done and she'd, she'd basically be walking out with her hair and I'm like, you look like you're about to die. I mean, you're just a wrinkled old lady. My grandmother, I love you and all, but really, but because her hair was just perfectly shaped, some of you probably had your grandmother or nanny or whatever you call them like that, and, and it's the specific aspect of who we are where we like it when it's positive, but on the flip side, when there's something specific about us that we don't like morally or even physically, it drives us crazy. And false prophets don't go there. True prophets know they need to go there. So personal acceptance versus the servant who knows he needs to say what God's word would have him to say. Now, carrying on, because uh, we have to finish up, um, we'll move on from false and true prophets to Paul's sort of farewells. And, and, and you see his greetings there uh, from various people. And, and this is his farewell. And notice now he's obviously not writing this. He's speaking. Tertius is, is the writer. And says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. So Paul greets people in Rome by name, but now he sends greetings by the names of those who are with him. And Timothy, you know, is a fellow worker. He's, got, he's the son of a Jewish mother, he's the son of a Greek father. Paul circumcised him, took him with him on his missionary tra- travels. And he, he comes up in every single one of Paul's letters except uh, Galatians, Ephesians, and Titus. So Timothy was obviously someone who was uh, very well uh, connected to Paul. But then I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. And, and there's Gaius, who is, is likely to be the Corinthian Gaius, whom Paul baptized, and, and probably a well-off Christian. And so you have these individuals who send their greetings. And that really is one of the great things about the Christian church, how Sometimes you've never met people, but because we're Christians, it's all good. So that's why I said to you a few minutes ago, you, you find yourself on a plane. You, you say, oh, well, you know, good flights on British Airways, and you land in Vancouver, and you say, hey, Mark, remember me? I was at the conference, and uh, is there anywhere I could stay here? And I would find you a place, and you say, I want to go to Victoria Butchart Gardens, you know, and see these beautiful flowers. Anywhere I can say, yep, because you're a Christian, and you're someone who is in my family. And a lot of the children in my church will call me Uncle Mark instead of uh, all sorts of other names I'd rather them not call me. (laughs) But the point is that what Romans shows us is the personal nature of the Christian faith within the massive context of this great cosmic story of redemption and, and, and how we're all united to Christ and one body. And, and you, so you sort of see big picture, but now you get zoomed in to like real human beings. And these real human beings have an affection for each other appropriate to their circumstance. There's greetings. And I think that's very important for us to understand that we are all connected together, but we should be so in a way where we could offer our greetings. So Paul's doxology, uh, you see from verse 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to 
my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for ages. So to him who is able. You see, that's speaking about God's power. And the question is, how does God exercise his power? How does he strengthen you? This is what Luther distinguished between a theologian of glory versus the theologian of the cross. And we must be careful not to become theologians of glory, whereby uh, we reason that, well, my dad, little kid, my dad is strong. So if he wants to do something, he's strong, he can do it. But God is way stronger than my dad. And so if God wants to do something, he can use his power to do it. Because that's not actually how God works. God shows his strength in weakness. God shows his strength in sending his son who dies in weakness. And so the way God defeats the devil and his angels and sin is not by a sheer act of power, but in weakness. And there's a number of illustrations from Jesus Christ himself who will even say in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. God's power, he could do that. That's not how God chose to work. He says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And what was God's answer? Well, based upon the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus got his answer, go to the cross. Or that time when, when he's arrested and he says, do you not think I cannot appeal to my father and at once he will send 12 legions of angels? But then how would the scriptures be fulfilled? The point is, when Paul's speaking about God's power and what he's able to do here, it is according to the gospel and preaching. That is how God is going to strengthen you. God doesn't just strengthen you where you're walking down the street and all of a sudden you're like, wow, I feel so holy, like I've got, a, I've got a, a light around my head and I feel great. God strengthens you in an ordinary way, the preaching of the gospel. Hopefully, God has strengthened you even over the course of the weekend. And, and you can't really feel it, but that's just what God is doing. And that's through the gospel. That is through the preaching of Jesus Christ. And, and one of the things that uh, is so remarkable about the gospel as you read the book of Romans is is really just how incredible this story is. And, and one of the illustrations that I've, I've thought about that's really affected me as I've thought about it is, imagine back at the beginning when Adam sins and all of the holy angels see that Adam has sinned and God calls the holy angels to him and says to the holy angels, well, you know, my being, you know my character, you know I am a merciful, loving God, but you also know that I am a holy God and a just and righteous God. And they know all of this about God. And God says to the holy angels, I want to save Adam and a multitude of sinners. Go and figure out how I can do that. Well, the holy angels leave his presence and they go away and they say, well, I suppose he could just forgive them, to which another holy angel would say, yeah, but then he isn't just. If he just simply pardons sin, how is he a holy, just, and righteous God? And so 
they try to figure out and concoct ways in which God can save a sinner and remain faithful to his character. And I think they would come back with what I call a bill of ignoramus. That is to say, they would come back, and do you think for even a moment the angels would say to Almighty God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we've come up with a plan. We think that the eternal Son of God should go down to a world that will reject him and hate him, spit on him, mock him, abuse him, that he should take on flesh and that he should be sacrificed by the Father on the cross and that he should cry out for the very first time in his life, even stretching back to eternity, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine the angels even daring to think such a thought? Which tells you something. Who could possibly have come up with this gospel but God alone? And that's what Romans is about, because you see in chapter 3, Christ was put forth as a propitiation so that what? So that God might be both just, there's his righteousness and holiness and justice, and the justifier of sinners, of the wicked. That's how God can save. That's how God can save sinners and be faithful to himself. But no one would have ever dared to have dreamed this up. Not even the angels. So that is God's disclosure. And you see that in verse 26. But has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. And if you go back to Isaiah 49, there's a prophecy that, that this will go to all the nations. But remember when that prophecy was made in Isaiah 49, that really the people who it was made to were in a small, tiny part of the world. And it's like world conquest they're talking about. And we don't see how significant that is because we live now thousands of years after that. But if you go back to Isaiah 49, you see that he will be a light to all the nations. And, and all of a sudden, you're sitting here right now in a castle. And how many nations are represented even in this castle where we're in one country? And you are a result not only of Romans chapter 16, where Paul says the gospel goes out to all the nations. You are a result of prophecies that extend way back to when there was just a tiny little speck on the earth. Speaking of this reality, you are the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and what is being said here has been made known to all nations. You're sitting here because of what Paul is saying. To bring about the obedience of faith. And that is to say that if you are sitting here and you've been brought up to the obedience of faith, whereby you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, everything that has been spoken of all those years ago to the letter in Romans has actually now been fulfilled here today. That's a great way to think about a weekend. So, 
Paul ends, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And uh, you see, there's different ways you can end a letter. You remember in Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon writes, and he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's a, that's a terrifying ending to the book of Ecclesiastes, I must say. But I think that ending would be entirely inappropriate given what Paul has written in Romans. And so it's for no mistake here that he says, to the only wise God, in light of everything that I've written in the book of Romans, how can you not say to the only wise God? You can't just say to God, it's his wisdom on display. And how can you not say, be glory forevermore in light of what he's done for us? And how can you not say through Jesus Christ, since everything he's done for us is through Jesus Christ? And so those last words are very, very suitable to the occasion. Well, let me just uh, conclude with um, a four-point summary for you to say this is what the book of Romans is about. And the first is this. God is faithful to his promises. The obedience of faith that he brings about in Jews and Gentiles is a fulfillment of his promise made to Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis. And so God is faithful to his promises. He is faithful to his promises because, as I said earlier, you are sitting here. He's faithful to his promises because of Paul writing this letter, he's faithful to his promises because of all that he promised to do, we see fulfilled in our very midst. But then secondly, God is faithful to himself. So as I said earlier as well, he's faithful to himself. God does not compromise himself in the book of Romans. You don't come away from the book of Romans and saying, well, you know, I really see God's love on display, but I don't see his wisdom. Or you don't say, well, I see his wisdom, but I don't see his justice. You don't say, well, I see a God of love, but I don't see a God of judgment. You can't read the book of Romans and come away and say, well, I really don't see this aspect of God. And so the book of Romans teaches us that God is faithful not only to his promises, but to himself. And that is why he receives glory upon glory. But then thirdly, God is also faithful to Jesus Christ because the obedience of faith comes about through the preaching of the gospel and the preaching of the gospel is the preaching of Christ crucified and raised again from the dead. And so every blessing that takes place in the church is a direct result of God being faithful to his son and rewarding his son. So that when Jesus is seated in the heavenly places and looks down right now upon a worship service in a castle in Ireland, he sees his glory. He sees God being faithful to him. That is what you are, God's faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And then finally, God is faithful to us. Because the gospel strengthens us. We've, we've seen that. God is faithful to us. 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things? And that's the glory of the gospel, that because God is faithful to his promises, he must be faithful to himself. And because he's faithful to himself, he must be faithful to his son, Jesus Christ. And because he's faithful to his son, Jesus Christ, he's faithful to all who belong to Jesus Christ. So you don't go to the book of Romans and you say, well, the book of Romans is about God's glory. Well, it is, but that doesn't really tell you much about what's going on in the book of Romans. But when you say promise and when you say Jesus and when you say God's attributes and when you say God's people, all of a sudden you're starting to understand something about what God has done in this great book. He has been faithful, 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 faithful. And so we come full circle back to the very beginning at the first talk. God is your friend, but he is your faithful friend whom you can count on. And what's important in light of what we've seen today is that you find faithful teachers who are going to be faithful to your souls about this gospel. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your faithfulness that we are here because of the promises that are fulfilled. We are here because of you. We are here because of Jesus. And we are here because we are Christ's body. And we praise you for that and ask that you will uh, enable us to be truly grateful for all that we have heard that is true. We ask that you would help us to discern between good and evil and reject what is evil and cling to what is true. And we pray that where we are ignorant, you will continue to fill us with knowledge but with knowledge that leads to life. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.